Well, this morning is talk number five in our series on big questions. And the subject today is can we really trust the Bible? The Bible continues to be a bestseller. Uh, Last year and every year in the UK, it sells in the region of one and a quarter million Bibles and New Testaments. And yet, ironically, there's such ignorance about its message. One student in an RE exam wrote that the seventh commandment is, thou shalt not admit adultery. (laughs) Another student wrote, uh, Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Painful. Uh, 300 wives, I mean. (laughs) The Bible says that man is only supposed to have one wife. This is called monotony. (laughs) So many things have been said about the Bible, both good, bad, and indifferent. Let me put a few of them up on screen for you. President Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God uh, has given to man. Charles Dickens said... The very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. But not everybody has such a glowing respect for the Bible. For example, our friend Richard Dawkins writes of the Bible in his book, The God Delusion. And he says, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird. As you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. He never disappoints us, does he really? He really doesn't. Maybe for a more balanced view, uh, although a very deeply challenging view, is that of Mahatma Gandhi, when he says, you Christians... Look after a document containing enough dynamite to turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it it is nothing more than a piece of literature. Ouch! I hope that's not true, but I suspect it might be. All fascinating stuff. But our big question today is not about whether the Bible or not is a bestseller or what Lincoln, Gandhi, Dickens, or Dawkins thinks about it. But the question this morning is, can we really trust the Bible? The Bible itself makes a significant claim for itself, that it is God-breathed. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. A few years ago, I purchased um, quite a wonderful book entitled Letters from a Skeptic, which is a dialogue between a father and a son. The son is a Christian theologian. The the father is a 70-year-old skeptic. And it's a fascinating exchange between these two guys. The father explains to the son why he isn't a Christian. And the son attempts to answer all of his father's uh, questions. And I'm going to read to you just one page from the father's point of view and what he has to say about the Bible. And I guess that this is a view that you've encountered. Maybe it's a view that you hold yourself this morning, but it's a view that you've encountered somewhere. Okay, here we go. So Father Edward writes uh, these words. So again, I ask you to answer me this. How can anyone be expected to believe that a serpent talked or that man was swallowed by a whale 
or that an axe head floated, that the giant sea parted, and that a man grew stronger the longer his hair became, and other such nonsense. How can anyone be expected to believe that all of this is literally the word of God? If you read it in any other book, you wouldn't give it a second thought. Remember, all these things primarily, uh, all these things primarily from my days as a Catholic, and was disturbed by them then, even when I was trying to believe. Help me in my dilemma. The Bible is just too bizarre to believe. Do you take it all to be literally true? Do you take every word of it to be infallible? Square with me, Greg, that's his son. Do you really believe in this talking snake stuff? Do you take all this nonsense seriously? And then there's this problem. You have talked so much about the love of God, but, I, but the God I recall in the Old Testament is anything but this. Didn't he wipe out the entire planet with a flood? Quite a temper he's got. And didn't he order the extermination of the Canaanites, women and children included? And didn't he incinerate Sodom and Gomorrah? That doesn't seem much like your loving God. And there are 30 letters in all. And it certainly makes for fascinating reading. The father Edward, this 70-year-old, eventually became a Christian. He believed. Uh, so I think he probably must have been quite satisfied with the answers, or most of the answers that his son gave. But I think that Edward's questions are good questions. They really are. You know, we might bristle a little bit when we hear that in church on a Sunday morning, but I think that they're good questions nevertheless. They're questions that people ask today. And what Edward does there, essentially, is he raises three areas of concern for him. Three areas that need to be answered. Firstly, he takes issue with the miraculous events recorded in the Bible (coughs) that he believes cannot possibly have happened. Secondly, it's the, the contradictions that we find in the Bible. And thirdly, a real issue with all the bloodshed and violence, particularly in the Old Testament. So what are we going to make of these challenges? I, I just feel as if I should do a sickie at this point and leave, and you can discuss it amongst yourselves. Okay, let's go for this this morning. <clears throat> miracles. Now, a few weeks back, three weeks ago, I think it was, I spoke on the subjects, do miracles contradict science? So I'm not going to uh, repeat everything that I said back then. If you weren't around on that occasion, do get the talk. It's on our website, on podcast, as it are all of the talks for this Big Question series. Briefly, in my previous talk, I spoke of some people attempting to uh, explain miracles away by informing us that people in Bible times were far more ignorant, far more superstitious, far more naive than we are in the 21st century. And back then I said that at one level, that comment is is true. They certainly weren't as scientifically sophisticated as people living in the 21st century. But I also said that we need to give them some credit because they know, just as we know, that virgins don't normally give birth to babies and that dead men normally stay dead and that walking on water is not a normal human activity. And that people born blind normally stay blind the rest, of, the rest of their lives. And people don't normally rise from the dead. You see, amongst those in the Bible who claimed that these miracles had taken place were hard-nosed cynics. People like Thomas, who got the nickname Doubting Thomas, 
Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. James, one of Jesus' brothers. And also, from a scientific point of view, Luke, who was a medical doctor. I explained previously that the real issues are not to, uh, not to deal with um, miracles, whether they occur or not. Because if God exists, then miracles are feasible. And we looked at this uh, statement uh, three weeks ago. If God exists, then there is no problem with miracles because God, by definition, is all-powerful. So the bottom line in this whole argument of miracles is not whether miracles occur or not occur, but whether God exists. And if God exists, then all things are possible because God, by very definition, is an all-powerful God. So if God exists, then there would be no difficulty him occasionally transcending the laws of nature. If God exists, then why should we question his ability to step into creation and create life in the womb of a virgin? It'd be no big deal. If God exists, then why can't we believe that he can turn water into wine and give eyesight to a man born blind or raise the dead? And that really is a very quick two-minute summary of that talk three weeks ago. I'm not going to say any more than that. If you are interested or if you want to listen to it again, go back and listen on podcast, please. The second area is this whole area of contradictions. And the Edward, the father, claims that the Bible is full of contradictions. And I have a suspicion that many people who, who, have, who, who say that, and many people who have said that to me in the past, have been people who have not even ever opened the page of the Bible, let alone studied it with an open heart and without prejudice. And very often it's the easy thing to say, oh, the Bible is full of, full of contradictions. And, um, and sometimes they're just borrowed views from other people. And people sometimes treat the Bible much in the way that they would treat a dictionary. Every house has a dictionary, but when you want a word spelled, what will you do? You tend not to go to the dictionary. You shout upstairs, how do you spell whatever it is? <laughs> you see, many people use the Bible like a dictionary. Instead of going to the Bible when they want to know about God, they ask for other people's opinions. Very often people who are as ignorant as they are, and no wonder I would say that people are often confused about Christianity. Now, <clears throat> That's sometimes true, what I've just said. It's not always true. It's sometimes true. There are often times that people who come and ask that question or make that statement about the Bible being full of contradictions are people who have studied the Bible, are people with genuine questions like um, uh, Father Edward was in his statement. Why are there contradictions in the Bible? For example... Why does the Bible teach an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in one place and then in another place say about turning the other cheek? That's one that I've been asked probably a couple of dozen times over the years. Well, the first thing I would say is that apparent contradictions can often be explained when you know a little bit about the Bible background. In the Old Testament times, Moses gave the command an eye for an eye or the principle of an eye for an eye in order to prevent excessive retribution and revenge. 
You see, at that time, people were just going out and killing people in revenge attacks for far lesser things done for them. You know, somebody had stolen something from them and they would go out and kill that person. And Moses, in effect, was a saying that if you must have revenge, let it be no more than what was done to you. But even that was not mandatory. Because even in the Old Testament times, forgiveness was always the better way. Furthermore, this principle of an eye for an eye uh, was never an opportunity of personal revenge. But it was the, the courts of the day would, uh, the, the sentence would be given through the courts of the day. And that's basically, isn't it, what happens in our system of law today, in our country. You know, you steal someone's possessions and get caught, you will pay. You will pay through the court system. You'll get a fine or a community sentence or a jail sentence. And you see, the, that is the principle that Moses was talking about, the principle of an eye for an eye. No one could just take this law into their own hands. It wasn't meant for personal retribution. You know, if you steal my car and I found out you've stolen my car, I'm not coming along and the law doesn't allow me to come along and steal you a car. That's something for the courts. And that's the way that it was originally meant in Old Testament times. When it comes to the New Testament... Jesus, by teaching people to turn the other cheek, was highlighting that always the better way is forgiveness. You see, the Jews had made this eye-for-an-eye principle into a compulsory law. God never meant it to be that way. And, you know, that's just whizzing through just uh, one quick accusation that people make that uh, the Bible is full of contradictions. And yet, with a little bit of understanding and background knowledge, those contradictions, contradictions can disappear. The Bible is not a simple book. Now, I've heard people, I've heard Christians actually coming up to me many times. They've said, oh, the Bible's a simple book. Any child can understand it. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. You know, anybody who tells me that, I, I know for all well that they've never read the Bible. If they say it's a simple book. It's not a simple book. It's a very difficult book. There are some parts of it which might be simple enough for children to understand. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book and it's, it, it, it's God's book. And I believe that we should spend time understanding it and taking the effort to do that. But I've been studying it for over 30 years and I really don't think that that statement is true. I love the Bible. And you know what? I want other people to love the Bible as well. And sometimes I feel a little bit like a guy who is trying to hook up his best mate with a girl that he knows. That's what I do. When, when I'm sort of sharing the Bible, that's what I feel, you know. Just imagine the scene for a moment. You know, I tell a friend who is single about this girl who is gorgeous and brilliant and outgoing and warm and accepting and charming, perfect for him. And then they meet. It's not that I stretch the truth of that girl at all because she's all of those things. But sometimes she can be a little bit shy. She doesn't go out and spilling her heart out to everyone. You've got to know the right questions to ask her. Until then, she might seem just a little bit aloof. 
She's beautiful at anyone's standards, but she dresses a little bit funny in this Middle Eastern sort of way. And her accent isn't always easy to understand, which can make that first date awkward and uncomfortable. And that's how it sometimes feels when I introduce people to the Bible as well. We need to realize that the words of the Bible are separated from us by 2,000 years and 2,000 miles. It's a different culture altogether at a different time. Okay? And the Bible is an inspired gift of God. It's a unique collection. It's an anthology of all sorts. It's poetry and letters and short histories and parables and allegories and books of law and wisdom literature and prophecies. Amazing collection of books, written over 1,500 years, in three continents, in three languages, by over 40 different human authors, from fishermen to tax collectors, and from kings to doctors, from tent makers to farmers, and it's all within the book. And maybe you've said in the past, and I know that I have, God, if you were communicating to us, couldn't you have done it in a bit simpler way, please? Couldn't you have just given us some kind of uh, law book or something like that? And I think that's a valid question. And I haven't got an answer for you about that because God has chosen to do this in the way that God has chosen to do this. And I believe that God is all wise in that and that God has his own thinking on that. He has not given us a book with 64,000 rules and regulations that we have to read for every aspect of, of life. He's not given us that kind of book. But what he has given us is his story unfolding throughout history. Telling the story that God has played in the lives of ordinary men and women down through the years. And this God story is told in their own words. Written in their own sometimes partial understandings and occasional misunderstandings. These imperfect, ordinary people, flesh and blood people, like us people, brought their raw stories with all of its warts and wrinkles, with their bizarre twists and turns, which became part of God's big story. The things were written down in their own language, in their own styles, in their own ways, from their own perspective. And their stories together tell God's story. But where do we start? Is there a key to understanding and reading the Bible? There is. And it's Jesus. Start with Jesus. Always start with Jesus. Jesus is the central figure. He's the central character in this masterpiece. Everything else is background in comparison. It's important, it's helpful... It's there to enhance and explain about the main character, Jesus. But Jesus is the central one. And we understand the Bible through the lens of Jesus, the light of the world who came into darkness. Let me explain it another way to you. If for a moment you consider the Bible as a kind of collection of maths textbooks, okay? Stick with me. I hope this makes sense. And with maths textbooks, you've got a whole range of various ability. There's an elementary book for, for beginners, 
for the little people. Then there's a second stage book and so on, all the way up to secondary school level, which then deals with algebra and geometry and trigonometry and calculus. I can't remember what they mean. I just remember the words. Brad, you'll have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, maths, okay. It's a long time ago, right? But imagine opening a second stage textbook and reading about subtraction. And in this second stage, year two book, you've got this statement in the book which says you cannot subtract a larger number from a smaller number. And then a few years go by and this student reaches senior school and the more advanced uh, textbook and you've got a chapter entitled Negative Numbers. And the first sentence reads, this chapter will teach you how to subtract larger numbers from smaller numbers. How on earth do you reconcile both of those statements? Were the authors of the second stage book telling lies? No. What happens is this. The author of the year two textbook told truth which was appropriate for his target audience. If those year two children had to learn about both positive and negative numbers at that stage, what do you think would have happened? They've just been overwhelmed. They couldn't have done it. So the experts in maths education predetermined the order that things need to be learned. Skills need to be mastered in a sensible order. First of all, you got addition. Then comes, come on, you remember the time you were in school? Subtraction, multiplication, then division, positive numbers before negative numbers. And the point that I'm making here is this, is that the Old Testament is like that elementary book for beginners. Whilst it's telling the story of the people of faith, Oftentimes, their understanding was partial and incomplete. They only saw part of the picture. But when we come to the New Testament and Jesus, Jesus is the full revelation of God. He's got out in the open. Okay, there are two mistakes that we can actually make and that are made when people read the Bible. Two different camps. You've got the liberals on the one hand, those who undermine the miraculous elements of the Bible. Uh, essentially, they say that miracles don't happen, so we need to find out some other way to explain them. And for liberals, the, book is, the Bible is normally seen as some kind of uh, human book. The other extreme are the literalists, people who simply don't take account of metaphors and symbolism in the Bible. There are people who uh, seem to forget that the Bible is also a human book. And they will just read and quote the Bible as if God had actually dictated every single word, word for word, without taking account of the context or necessarily the book that they're reading. You know what? You can't read a law book in the way that you can read a letter. You know that, don't you? You don't read your mortgage document in the way that you read a, a letter from a friend. And similarly, when we come to the scriptures, we need to understand what we are reading. Otherwise, it won't make any sense to us at all. We'll just take verses out and, they'll mean, and we'll get them to mean something that they were never intended to mean. And if you have a high view of scripture and you regard scripture, then please, you must not do that because... 
I don't know how that can be God's word to you if you do that. Because you are not doing any better than any of the cults. It needs to be understood in the context and the original intentions of the author, surely. Okay. I said something to you a few weeks back. I can't remember which talk it was in, but I, I said this to you. Something can be true without it being literally true. And the example that I gave on that occasion is that the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, speaks about the sun rising and the sun setting. Now that statement is not literally true. Because the sun doesn't go anywhere. The sun doesn't go around a motionless earth. That's what the church felt in the 17th century and all the problems they had with Galileo over that. No, 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 no. The sun stays put. And everything else, the earth and all the planets, revolve around the sun. So, literally speaking, the sun rising and the sun setting isn't a literally true statement. It isn't a scientific statement. But we can understand it to be true because we know full well when we read that statement it is talking about dawn and dusk. It's talking about how we perceive things from our point as an observer. So that tr statement is true, but it's not literally true. Now, coming back to Edward Boyd, this guy who was uh, having this conversation with his uh, son. <clears throat> this is what he says again, just to fresh our memories. How can anyone be expected to believe that a ser serpent talked Another such nonsense. How can anyone be expected to believe that all of this is literally the word of God? If you read it in any other book, you wouldn't give it a second thought. Now, many Christians would say that they can believe that story in the early parts of Genesis for the reason that something can be true without it being necessarily literally true. And they would say that the talking serpent in the Garden of Eden was a literary device, a metaphor, if you like, uh, used by the author to represent Satan. And the forbidden fruit on a tree represents temptation and so forth. So it's true, absolutely true. The message is true to us, but it's not true in the strictly, strictly literal truth. Some Christians would believe that. Now, we need to recognize here that the Bible weaves together lots of things. Weaves together history and allegory. In the Bible, there's poetic language, there's prose, there's metaphor, there's hyperbole. You know, let me give you an example of hyperbole. When Jesus told his disciples that it would be better for them to pluck out an eye and cast, cut off their hand rather than look at another person lustfully, yes, that's an example of hyperbole. And um, uh, Jesus didn't mean it literally. Well, for our sakes, at least I hope not. That would be awful. Obviously, he didn't mean it literally, but the, the message was there nevertheless. So we can take the Bible to be true without it on occasions to be literally true. And we need to be very, very aware of that. Otherwise, all we will do is we'll fall into this group of literalists and we just read the Bible in a very mechanical way, sometimes without even understanding what we're reading. Okay. Thirdly, I thought I'd leave the easiest one to last. Not. <laughs> How can we trust the Bible 
when we have all this bloodshed and violence? And uh, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. The first thing I would say is that a good deal of the bloodshed and the violence that we read in the Bible is simply a reporting of what has happened. Much in the way that modern media reports uh, a war zone like Syria. You know, we don't tell the Daily Mail that they're reporting of events in Syria or Afghanistan is too graphic, do we? They're just reporting what's there. And there are some aspects of that that we find in the Old Testament amongst all the, the blood and the guts, okay? And it's just a reporting. But many of us know, and you know and I know, that that's only a partial answer. Because there are occasions when we read, it appears, that God has instructed the genocide. And I actually know someone who is so upset and angered by these passages that she's actually stopped reading the Old Testament. So let me attempt to answer this incredibly difficult question. It really is. The first thing is that we need to work from what is known about God to what we find confusing about God. That's absolutely key. We've got to start in this book, which is 66 books. It's an anthology of all these different types of literary genre. Where do we start? How do we do this? Well, what is it that we really, truly know about God? And then that can be our foundation for understanding other parts. And again, I would say that the best place to start is Jesus. Jesus, the one in whom God is fully revealed. When we talk of what God is like, we must always, always start with Jesus. John, in his Gospel, chapter 1, writes that Jesus was one who was full of grace and truth. And whenever we read some of these Old Testament vengeful passages, we cannot, cannot, cannot... Um, you know, they, they don't reveal a God who is somehow different to the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. The one who on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do in response to the torture that he received at the hands of men. If you want to know what God is like, that's what God is like. Jesus is the full revelation of God. And if our interpretation of any other passage in the scriptures at odds with Jesus, then we are probably reading the other passages wrong. You've gone very quiet. Some of you are asleep, I know. <laughs> Secondly, I'm glad you woke up to say that. There we go, that was good. <laughs> Secondly, Many of the ancient tribes that we read of in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation wiped out, were terribly evil. They were the ancient equivalents of the Islamic State today. And we all know of the atrocities that we've been reading in our newspapers of the uh, Islamic State. Just two weeks ago, there was a horrendous one, and there are many, many of them that we read of, where a 12-year-old boy just had his fingertips cut off, and then he was crucified to death. You know, and, and it was all because he was a Christian. And there are many such examples as that. And in the Old Testament times, the ancient Canaanites, they used to ritually sacrifice newborn babies by burning them alive. 
Now, this morning, it's been such a delight to dedicate uh, baby Xander to the Lord. And we've heard some wonderful words from his dad, Alan. Can you imagine that being a part of your culture where newborn babies were thrown into the fires to appease the gods? There's also evidence uh, from those civilizations that they would perform a religious ritual of tying together the legs of a woman in labor and leaving her until she and her child died. They would celebrate victories by impaling conquered adult subjects and then smashing the heads of their children on the rocks, just as uh, the, the defeated armies looked on. You see, some people would even argue that the destruction of the Canaanites, or for, the, for that matter, the Islamic State, is the lesser of two evils, that the world would be a better and a safer place without them. I know this is hard teaching. You know, are we not praying today for the success of the Iraqi and the Kurdish troops as they enter the ancient city of Mosul? I am. To defeat Islamic State so that men, women and children are released from the horrors and the brutality of that regime. I'm praying for that. And maybe when we understand that, we can only begin to understand a little bit more some of the stuff that we read in the Old Testament. Do I believe that God is for such an action in freeing innocence, even though it might mean the destruction for a brutal, evil regime? Soberly and solemnly, I say I do. And I'm sure you do too. These are hard questions. But can we really trust the Bible? My word, time has gone. Let me just finish very quickly, if I can, with five reasons why I believe that the Bible is trustworthy. First of all, the manuscripts themselves. You see, a large part of the Bible deals with eyewitness accounts. Nearly all of the books in the New Testament were written within 40 years of the death of Jesus. So if lies had been told in these books, I think there would have been enough people around to correct them, to kick up a fuss, to put the record straight. You know, it's uh, Remembrance Sunday today. We are celebrating those who have fallen in the First and Second World Wars and other uh, battles since then. 71 years ago was the end of World War II. But can you imagine anyone writing uh, today and saying that in World War II there was lots of money around? Petrol was plentiful. There was no rationing at all. And in London that wasn't even touched by any bombing at all. You see, there would be a public outcry if anybody wrote that now or someone claimed that for the Second World War. 71 years ago, all of the writings within that, that were published in the New Testament are within 40 years of Jesus. In fact, Paul writes that there were over 500 people who had witnessed his resurrection, and he writes of those. So therefore, first of all, I think that we can rely on the manuscripts. Secondly, archaeology. Now, archaeology can never, ever prove the Bible. But it can confirm that what the Bible is talking about is actually historical. That's what it can do. And there are thousands of examples. But I'm going to give you one so that you get 
the idea of what I'm talking about. In John chapter 5 verse 2, it says there, Now there in, is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonies. Now for 1900 years, most scholars dismiss this idea of this pool being there as fanciful, as being some kind of poetic license that the writer was using. And then in 1888, excavations of the site were done and they discovered a, a pool with five porches. Okay, That's where archaeology comes in. It can't prove the Bible, but it can certainly prove the history around the Bible. Okay. Whizzing through these now. Prophecy. Again, the Bible is quite amazing the way that it predicts future events, future events which happen. Not the kind of uh, thing that you find in an average horoscope. Today you will meet a handsome stranger. Tomorrow it will be dry if it's not raining sort of thing, you know. But specific uh, predictions which are quite unmistakably fulfilled. And most of you here today, I know, will know that the Bible has two parts. The first part, the Old Testament, the first three quarters of the Bible, was written hundreds of years before Jesus. The New Testament is written of Jesus, his life, and the church afterwards. And uh, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus, all of which are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The chances of that happening, just by coincidence, are astronomical. They're astounding. A guy by the name of uh, Dr. Peter Stoner, who is a professor emeritus of science at America's West Point College, wrote a book called Science Speaks. And he calculates the chances of only 48 of the 300 prophecies coming true in one man's life just by chance. And his figure was 10 to the power 157. So that's 10 with 157 zeros after it, which is the equivalent, supposedly, of, of filling the entire Great Britain up with one pound coins to a level of two feet, putting a cross on one and then blindfolding a man and saying, OK, go and choose that coin. You can walk as far as you like. Dr. Stoner concludes by saying to reject the Bible's claims that Jesus is the Messiah is to reject a fact proved more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Survival under attack is another reason. You see, the Bible has resisted all kinds of attacks down through the years. Attacks from philosophers, attacks from atheistic, communistic governments, attacks even within the church itself, if you read about the times uh, just after the Middle Ages. Voltaire, who was a French philosopher, uh, predicted that the days of the Bible would be numbered and he said that it would soon be discarded and there would be more advanced uh, philosophies uh, coming and replacing it. 200 years have passed since then and the Bible is still going pretty strong. And the wonderful irony is that 100 years after that date, there was a Bible society that distributed Bibles from the house that he lived in uh, when he gave that prediction. Sorry, guys. It, it's... Uh I am going to finish on this, all right? Honest. Maybe. Honest. Okay. It works. It works. This book has the power to change lives. I believe that passionately.
Some of you will know this guy, David Suchet, who is well known for his uh, title role in Poirot. Tells of how he became a Christian a number of years ago. He was in, a, in his bath in a hotel in uh, America. And he just had a sudden impulsive urge to read the Bible. And he started to read the New Testament. And as he did, he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this is what he writes. From somewhere I got this desire to read the Bible again. That's the most important part of my conversion. I started with the book, with, with the Acts of the Apostles, and then moved to Paul's letters, Romans, Corinthians, and it was only after, I came, uh, after that I came to the Gospels. In the New Testament, I suddenly discovered the way that life should be followed. I'll finish there. You see, other great writings may delight us, they may move us, may allure us, but only the Bible can transform us. And if we read it, I think that we recognize that there is something which is divine about it. It breathes something divine. And I don't think that any other book on the face of the planet has the same kind of power to transform a human life. I've never heard of Trollope or Shakespeare or Dickens or the Koran or the Book of Mormon or anyone else's writing having that sort of power. So, the question that we've asked today is, can we really trust the Bible? I must definitely answer that question in the affirmative. And I would also say that without the Bible, we would never know anything truly about what God is like, about what Father God is like, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, or about our salvation. Let's pray together.